the book of Acts. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the good news. And then the book of Acts is, well, what happens after the good news? What happens after the resurrection? And sometimes people think of the book of Acts as the acts of the apostles or the acts of the disciples. And certainly it's that. Sometimes you think of it as the act of the Holy Spirit. Because when you read through the book of Acts, you just see the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Or the acts or the action of the Word of God. So as it's proclaimed. So all those acts are unfolding and you get this great unfolding uh, till Acts chapter 28 when Paul lands in Rome. And so to speak, it's gotten to the ends of the earth. So we're here on that journey. Uh, let's stand together as we read these verses. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. She had come to Jerusalem to worship, or he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. I'm sure everyone's had this uh, same experience. You've gone to the mall. You've arrived, newly arrived on a college campus. You're in a large city, maybe. And uh, you don't know where you are. And so you start looking around and you're looking for the same thing in each of those places. You're looking for that sort of big uh, map that's got plexiglass in front of it, right? And it's a map of the area that you're in. And you go find it, and when you look at the map, what's the very first thing you look for? The little sign, the little arrow that says, you are here. Because if you don't know where you are, there's no, where, there's no way for you to know where, you, where to go. So you look at the map, and aren't you glad they just put the little arrow there? You're, hey, bud, you're right here. So I know you're lost, but at least now you know exactly where you are. And then from that point, you can go find out where you need to go. And essentially, that's what we have in this text. We have this Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading something 
but he doesn't really know where he is. And he needs somebody, a guide, he asks. I need a guide. I need a map. And I, first of all, I need somebody to come up to me and say, hey, buddy, you're here. Okay, all right, I'm here. Now, can you tell me how to get to, from here to where I need to go? And, and essentially, that's what this passage is about. And so what we're going to be talking about are character traits or seeing in the text are character traits of this one particular disciple, Philip, and what he does in this context, and then you appropriate it for yourself and say, well, what can I learn from Philip? What can I learn from this passage that would help me as I look at other people and say, hey, you're here, and how can I get you from here to your final destination, which is Jesus? And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to try to ask ourselves, we are disciples. We're talking about discipleship here in the last couple of weeks how can you be more like Philip? What part of Philip's uh, discipleship do you need to appropriate to your own life? And then as we get to the end, I'm going to give you a particular personal challenge. All right? So that's, that's where we're going. Let's just look at things. These are very obvious as you just read through this great little story. The first thing that we see or the first observation you can make in Philip is that he has a, a certain spiritual maturity or he has maybe a certain sensitivity to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And you see it a couple of different times. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord, however this happened, said to Philip, hey, I want you to go do this. And then verse 27, Philip rose and he went. Verse 29, then the Spirit said, go. He's on this desert road. Hey, Philip, now go move towards this guy. So Philip ran. And so Philip is somehow mature enough, he's spiritually sensitive enough that when the Holy Spirit's asking him to move in some sort of way, to, to move out in some direction that maybe not what he would normally do, he's sensitive enough to say, yes, God, I, I hear that, I'm going to move in that direction. And it doesn't say in this passage how Philip developed his spiritual maturity to be able to be sensitive to the promptings, the, the leadings, the, the voice of the Lord. But I think we have a good idea since he's a disciple of Jesus and all disciples develop this particular pattern that follows from Jesus. I think we can get an idea of how Philip developed this sensitivity and how we might develop the same sensitivity by looking at the life of Jesus. You remember right before Jesus is going to launch his public ministry. He's come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist has looked and said, hey, here's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the Lamb of God. And right after that, Jesus is going to launch his public ministry for three years. And in this particular window of the life of Christ, he needs to be particularly sensitive to how God is saying, Jesus, it's time to move in this direction. It's time for you to go in this direction. And what does Jesus do between his baptism and his first sermon? He spends 40 days fasting, prayer, solitude. It's like he's getting the supercharge, like, okay, I want to I make sure I get rid of all the other noise because I'm just about ready to step out into this public place and there's going to be all kinds of forces coming at me and there's going to be all kinds of noise entering my life and I just need to be sensitive, God, to God the Father. What do you want me to do? I'm going to move in that direction. 
And we see Jesus has this habit from the very beginning, and it extends through his ministry. He's just about ready to call these 12 ordinary men called the disciples. And he's going to invest into these 12 guys for three years, and then he's going to look at these 12 guys and say, okay, guys, you're it. You're going to be the church. You're going to be, you're going to be the launching pad for a global mission. And lots of people have been following Jesus up to this point. And Jesus wants to make sure he picks the right 12. And so what does he do the night before? All night in prayer up on a mountainside. Just, just trying to be sensitive to God's voice. Trying to block out all the other noise. All, all the other competition. Jesus, once he starts his public ministry, it begins with some incredible miracles. And you might imagine his miracles just produce a tidal wave of interest. And so one night he's healing people and then he goes to bed late. He gets up early and goes and prays. And when the disciples wake up a little groggy a little bit later, they, they walk outside and the whole town is now back. And in a very fascinating little moment... The disciples go interrupt Jesus's prayer meeting. Imagine that. Hey, I know you're praying, but I mean, come on. Ah, sorry, Jesus, but the whole town is looking for you. You know, you could just sense their eagerness like, yes. And what does Jesus do? Right now, it's time to go to another town. See, it's completely counterintuitive to what you would think. So how would Jesus know now is the time to go to another town? He's sensitive to the movement or the work or the voice of God. And it comes through this silence, this space, prayer, blocking out all the other voices, so that as you walk through your life, you can be sensitive to God saying to you, hey, let's, let's go and move in this direction. So the first, and, and I would say just the critical component of your own discipleship, is does this mark your, do you have this as a rhythm of your day, a rhythm of your week? Or are you just hoping to hear the Spirit's voice as you race from one meeting to another? And you're irritated at the driver, and then you always hit that stupid red light, and all this kind of stuff, but Lord, please direct me. Or do you have some space that you say, God, I'm not listening to any other voice. I'm just orienting myself around you. I just want to make sure that as I move forward through my family, through my workplace, through my community, through my school, I'm trying to hear and be sensitive to your voice because you might be saying, hey, this is the day when you run across this person in the hallway. You're going to say something, and I've gotten you ready and them ready for this particular counter. I want you to be ready for it. To have space in your life that creates a sensitivity to hearing the voice of God. One of the things that we're going to talk about in our, at our vision banquet is this uh, little phrase that we're going to try to introduce into the church's vocabulary that came, thankfully, from Jeremy Haddock, our uh, missions leader. And we were just talking about what, what we want to try to do is to, to try to Remove the idea of missions from something that you would go do or you support to something that it's who you are. So we don't just have a missions committee that sort of goes, do, goes and does something and you kind of support it or you pray for it. But you're on a mission. You're part of a mission. You're doing missions in some way. 
And I said, we need some kind of tagline. We need something that people can just remember. And Jeremy said, hey, how about 100% sent? I was like, way to go, Jeremy. That's our new little missions tagline. 100% sent. Everybody here is on a mission, just like Philip is on a mission. God has designed you to be in a particular location for his purposes, and we're 100% sent. And my question for you is if we are 100% sent, and I believe we are, then how are you going to know what God wants you to do? Have you built in this pattern of listening to God so you would know if he says to you, like he says to Philip, hey, it's time to go in a different direction. Would you hear that? Would you know that's God's voice? Second character trait we see displayed in Philip is an unquestioned trust in the movement of God. When God says, rise and go, Philip goes. It's just an unquestioned trust. Now, I think it's important to understand something here. In Acts chapter 1, we know that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So his plan is a global mission. And when you read Acts chapter 4 you find out that Philip was the first missionary outside of Jerusalem. He's the tip of the spear into this next level of evangelism or worldwide mission. He's the first one in. He's like the Marines. You know the Marines? They're the first ones in. Philip is like the the Marine. He is the first one in to Samaria. And you can read it earlier in the chapter, and you see it there in uh, chapter 8, verse 4. He's the first one in. And then for the next 20 verses... If you read that later today, you just go, wow, there's an incredible explosion of of the gospel and some incredible, miraculous events happening in this Samaria. And the, the, the events are so incredible and so miraculous that Peter and John, the two primary disciples, because James is dead at this point, they have to come to Samaria and say, well, what's going on? I mean, imagine that, that, that Peter and John call me up and say, Paul, something so incredible is happening in Wilmington. I'd like to come to your church just to see it. Be like, whoa, Peter and John? So the activity is so monumental, so miraculous, that Peter and John have to come and say, wow, let me see what God is doing. And it's right in the middle of all this activity That God looks at Philip and says, hey, it's time to go. Now, what, how would you respond? You've gotten some sense it's time to launch a new mission into Samaria. You're the tip of the sphere. You take that first step. You, you watch something happen. You got all kinds of conflict and all kinds of things, but the, you could see the spirits moving. All kinds of things are happening. Peter and John are now coming in behind you with resources and it's just beginning to blossom. And God says, Hey, now for you, it's time to go. Now, because I'm not as spiritually mature as I should be, this is maybe how I would respond. I would pray. And in my prayer, I don't know if you'd ever done this, but in my prayer, I would inform God of what's going on in Samaria. 
God, I'm coming to you. I hear that voice, but, I mean, maybe you don't see it, buddy. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I mean, remember, I'm the tip of the spear. We just got this flower to open up, and look what all the possible. I would just be lecturing God in the kindest, sweetest voice about all the things that he apparently just doesn't quite see. Not Philip. An unquestioned obedience to the voice of the Lord. Or if I could get through that hurdle, unfortunately, I've got another level that I need maturity in. I would think this. Okay, God, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Okay, and I'm on my way and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, if he used me for Samaria, hmm. I mean, he must be really needing somebody in something big and grand because he got me here. So, man, God needs me. I'm his man. I'm ready to roll now. And this is what he says. Philip, ready to go. I'm ready to go. Let's take on Rome. He says, I need you to go to a desert and meet one man. I mean, did I hear that? I mean, here I am in the middle of all this incredible expanding activity. And I'm going specifically to a desert to meet one individual. You see, God's economy and the way he operates just isn't the way we operate. And so wherever you may be, you may feel like, hey, I'm in the middle of something big. I'm just one, one person. My question is, do you have an unquestioned obedience to go? Or are you always negotiating? You're always navigating with God. You're always trying to barter in some way. You're always trying to say, well, this is how it could be better. Great character trait of a disciple is when God says go, I'm going to go. Then when you read these verses, verses 27 and 28, let's look at them together. He rose and he went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning. He's seated in his chariot and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, when I read these two verses, the, what I see or what I sense in these two verses is the and, and let's see if you can see it with me the incredible forces at work in the life of this Ethiopian man I mean Luke has written this and he's taken these two verses to try to set up to say hey Philip's going to enter into this person's life but let me tell you in two sentences something about this guy's life and I'll explain it here but what I want you to see is massive forces at work in this one man's life that Philip's ready to encounter. Number one, he's Ethiopian. He's a black man. Philip is a Jewish man. And so immediately you have an ethnic barrier. It's obvious. And you come into the situation and you say, well, they have just some differences than I do. Their perception of the world, the world's perception of them, my perception of them, all kinds of ethnic barriers. You felt it yourself in some way, if you've, especially if you traveled overseas. You just realize there's so many differences in the way you perceive the world or you think the world is seeing you. And one of these massive cultural forces at work here is this ethnic force 
and we feel it all the time. Second, there's a huge cultural force that usually goes with an ethnic force. Uh, in, in the times of the New Testament, the, in Ethiopia, which is basically south of Egypt in the New Testament times, uh, the king of Ethiopia was thought to be an incarnation of the sun god. So he himself is like a godlike figure. And because he's a godlike figure, he doesn't do politics. He doesn't, do, he doesn't run stuff because he's too busy being godlike. And so who does all the power shift to? Who does all the work shift to? It shifts to the queen. So the queen is the real power broker in, the, in this particular culture. And because the queen is the real power broker, if you wanted to get into politics, if you want to go in that direction, then you have to understand what's happening here, that, that there's enormous sort of cultural, political forces at work if you come out of Ethiopia. And if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in power, if you're, if you're really interested in real wealth as an Ethiopian male, and you want to get connected to the power source, the queen, then you have to castrate yourself. Because we don't want to, make, we just want to make sure that we're going to take any sexual temptation out of your rise to power as you follow after the queen. So this man is basically the CFO of Ethiopia. He, he's the he's right in line behind the queen, the real power structure. He's he's the treasurer of the whole country. Now, now, I think we can say you have to be really hungry for wealth, really hungry for power, really hungry for prestige, really hungry for position if you're willing to cast your, castrate yourself in order to get it. You see what the force at work in this guy's life? He, he's promoted this one thing, and he's willing to cut himself off literally and figuratively from uh, physical intimacy, having a family, and, and a number of other losses. Think of the losses this guy embraced in order to get to this one thing he, ha- he thought he had to have. So we got that force at work. Finally, and sort of surprisingly, you find out that he's come to Jerusalem to worship. Isn't this interesting? He's come to Jerusalem to worship. And so what, what I see here is this man has given all he can, really, to become the power broker. He got it. And what, it, what was it when he got it? If, you're, if you've been through the series in Ecclesiastes and you remember the message of Koheleth, when he got what he dreamed for, what was it? It was vanity. It was a mist. It was vapor. He had a dream. He made the sacrifices. He got the dream. It was a mist. It was vanity. And he's looking. His soul is searching for something else. And somewhere along the line, we're not told, he hears of the God, the Jewish God named Yahweh. Somebody who's above the sun god. Somebody who can make sense of life. And he decides, hey, I've got this huge hole in my soul that can't be filled by the one thing that I thought I could have. So I'm going to go after this Yahweh character and see if he can fill that up. And he's had so much energy, he's willing to take this 
five, six, seven hundred mile chariot ride to Jerusalem to worship this particular God. Do you, do you just see all the forces at work in this one man's life? Sexual, financial, political, power, ethnic. It's like a knotted intersection. And what does God decide to use to send into that knotted intersection? I would have used like dynamite or something. I mean, or a computer, something to figure all this out. What does he send? One guy. He sends one person in this knotted intersection to say, hey, buddy. You're here. Now let's try to unknot some of this. And let me see if I can take you to Jesus. So that's, that's, the, that's the forces at work as Philip enter, enters into this particular situation. And you might think, gosh, well, this is a big assignment. This is a big assignment to, to, to walk into somebody's life and just notice not quite sure about this, but I want you to notice in verse 29 and 30, uh, Philip's action. He, he's, he's along a desert road. There's very few, if anybody, on this desert road. That's why it's called the desert road. And uh, the, the chariot comes by. And probably because this guy's a CFO, it's some entourage of people coming by. And there, it's not a chariot race. They've got five, 600 miles to go, so they're just kind of trotting along here. And they move along, and, and God says, hey, Philip, I want you to, to go over to that chariot. And what does he have to do to go over the chariot? He, he runs to the chariot. And if you look in verse 36, which we didn't read, after Philip sort of reveals Jesus, verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, here's some water, let me be baptized. So most scholars look at Philip's action running, then this reaction, they're going along the road talking about Isaiah, and we have to stop and get baptized, that when, when God said to Philip, go to the eunuch, the chariot's rolling. So here you are. Hey, bud, I'm just out for a jog here on the desert road. I mean, he's not going super fast, but... I mean, I'm glad God didn't call me because when I run, no talking happens. I mean, <laughs> but Philip's in shape, so he's just jogging alongside. Never mind me, just right here. It's just a strange picture, is it not? And here, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading out loud. Because Philip says, hey, I hear what you're reading. So he's running alongside, and he says, hey, I, I hear what you're reading. I've read that before. I know about those verses. Do you need some help? Yeah, I need a guide. Hey, instead of running, why don't you just hop in? And so they sit, and they roll along, and Philip tells them about Jesus. Now, God can and still does miraculous things. There's no doubt about it. But this primary method for evangelism, 
is one person running alongside somebody else telling them about Jesus. That's the primary way it happens. He can do it a thousand different ways. He has done it a thousand different ways. But the primary way is I need somebody who knows me, who's willing to listen to my voice, run along somebody else, help them see Jesus. That's what it's about. Final point, and I wish I could uh, unfold this, but I I just don't have time because it's not the purpose of this particular sermon. He he stopped, or he gets into the uh, chariot, and basically in verse 34, the eunuch says, hey, I don't know where I am. I'm reading this, but I don't know where I am. And Philip says, hey, buddy, you're here. You're in a great spot to hear about Jesus. You've got this particular passage. And, of course, we could go to Isaiah and all these rich Isaiah verses. But the, the most important thing is he sa- he's saying to him, I'm going to begin right where you are. I'm going to begin right with this scripture, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And Philip takes his friend and says, I want you to see something in Isaiah that's a shadow of a greater reality, and I know that greater reality. His name is Jesus, and he's died, and he's resurrected for the empty spot in your soul. Do you want to know Jesus? Yes, I do. Such a great moment. That somebody sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit, somebody willing to run along somebody else, somebody willing to ask and dialogue some questions, somebody willing to get into this knotted intersection where there's all kinds of influence and power on your life and say, I'm not afraid of that. I'm willing to dive in and unknot some of that stuff. And I'll start wherever you are and I can start where you are and I can take you to God. And so my challenge to you is, will you be that one person? Because a lot of times you think about missions or you think about evangelism or you use those words. Somehow they tend to be like other people or people have a certain level of talent or gifts or charismatic people, preachers or whatever it is. It just feels like it's not it's usually not me. It's you. Acts chapter eight saying it's you. And my, my question, my challenge, my exhortation is everyone here can be sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And he may ask all kinds of things. I don't want to say he's just going to ask one thing. But my guess is if you're in school, if you're in a business, if you're in a neighborhood, if your heart is beating, then, then there's somebody around that needs to say, to needs to know Jesus. And my question is, would you be willing to be sensitive, run alongside, start where they are, and take them to Jesus? Now, you can't get somebody into the kingdom, but you can get somebody to the door, basically. I remember meeting with a guy, we were going through the Gospel of John, and we got to the end of the session kind of like the end of the road the end of this ride and the guy where it where it k&w says hey i I made a commitment to christ last weekend (laughs) thank you for getting me there i said hey i couldn't get you all the way there i could just show you where the door was and this was i never forget what he said yeah but you moved a lot of furniture in order for me to get to the door so that's what we do Run alongside, move furniture. I hear what you're saying. Yep, that's not true. That is true. 
So that's my challenge. Here's my resource aid to you. All right, number one. These two books are free, and we're going to get more in. So you, fortunately, you came to the first service today, so you can pillage the free books for the poor second service people. be like empty table. Uh, but this is one-to-one reading the Bible. How do you read the Bible with one other person? What, are the, what little method should I use? How do I do that? Simple, little, easy, excellent, lifelong tools in here. So you pick one of these up. You read through this. You can read through it in an afternoon. It's very simple. And it'll just help you have, okay, I have some kind of construct. If I'm meeting with somebody, I'm going to read through a particular book of the Bible. I just know how to do that. You need to have that tool. If you're a disciple, you need to have that tool ready. Number two, this book here is called God's Big, Big Picture. It takes you in a very obviously small book from the beginning of creation to the end of the Bible and the end of the world. So that wherever somebody is, you can say, oh, you're here. Oh, you're here. But a lot of people don't really have a scope of what the Bible is doing. So if you start in Isaiah, you're like, dude, I don't know where you are. Let's just go to John. I mean, let's start in John. I'm good at John. But you want to say, no, I want to start where you are. So you've got to know something about the whole Bible. Somebody's wrapped up about creation. Somebody's wrapped. Okay, you're here. Great. Great place to start. Let's, let's get you from here to there. And so this book, great book, will help you to, to understand what's the whole scope of the Bible. What's the big story? What's the meta narrative so that you have it in your brain? So as you enter into one-to-one Bible reading, you'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what this means. You move from here to there. Does that make sense? Okay, so those are two free resources, one per family. And if you just want to take them home and say, man, this would look great underneath that little lamp that I have on my coffee, you know, don't take them. Take them if you're going to read them. Third, this book, The Hope of Glory. This is, this is a sample. Now, see, somebody said sample is like, like when you go to the mall and you're in the food court. Sample is you just take one and walk away. Sample, that's not what the sample is here today. <laughs> sample is look at it, put it back down. All right, because we had somebody at Iron Leadership was like, oh, awesome, take this home. I was like, so this, this is just a sample. You can get this, from a, you can get this on your Kindle. Uh, there's a couple of samples that you can look at. And what this book is, is basically a commentary on the book of Colossians, which is what we're going to start next week. Two or three page devotion on a few verses. And there's a hundred of these little devotions. So here's my challenge to you, my encouragement, is that you would buy this book or you would download it, and you just make this your devotion life for the next hundred days. And if you do that about four or five days a week, then we'll, I'll start preaching through Colossians next week, and you'll be reading this, you'll be thinking about it, you'll be hearing the sermons, and when we get to the end of January, you'll be an expert on the book of Colossians. You'll have that in your, your little spiritual closet, so if you ever need to read through the book, a book of the Bible with somebody, and Colossians is a great book to do this with, just four chapters, you can say, hey, let's just read through the book of Colossians, just four chapters. Oh, okay, great. And you're already an expert on it. You don't need to go. You've read it. You've listened to sermons. You've thought about it. You've prayed about it. Now you can easily take this in February with this person you're sensitive, the Holy Spirit sent to, and say, hey, would you like to read through a little short book of the Bible? That's my, my challenge for us. This is how God works. This is how God takes the empty seats in here and fills them back up. 
It's not dynamic preaching and worship. It's one person being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, running alongside, asking questions, getting into that knotted intersection of all kinds of other forces and saying, hey, you're here. Let me show you Jesus. Jesus.